Hello everyone, welcome to the second episode of the Along the Broken Road podcast. My name is Megan and I will be your host. I was thinking a lot about what I wanted to talk to you about today and some of my followers gave me some really great input and it makes the most sense for me to start at the beginning, right? For me to explain what has inspired all of this and and why I do this. And that really is the story of my late husband, Ralph, and what I went through with him. So today we're going to talk about him, and I'll tell you all about how we met, when we got married, and when he got sick. So Ralph and I met right before turning 18 years old. It was at the end of junior year of high school. If you were to ask Ralph, he would tell you that it was actually prior to that. Apparently, I met him, I think it was sophomore year, on a class trip, but I was dating somebody else at the time when I was introduced to him, so I don't remember that encounter, and (laughs) Ralph always would tease me and, and tell me that apparently he wasn't all that memorable, which of course was not true. But anyway, we officially met at the end of junior year. We were both in the same room for our SATs, and we noticed each other, and we had some mutual friends, so we both kind of started asking questions about each other, and our friends thought that we might hit it off, so they set up a meeting, and sure enough, when we met, we totally hit it off, and really the rest was was history. We just, we, we are very compatible. We got along really well. We had a lot of the same interests. My good friend Missy once told me that Ralph and I were basically like the same person, just one in male form and one in female form. So I remember at the end of senior year, or actually it was around Christmas time, I went on a trip. It was a program called Close Up, and it was where a group of seniors traveled to Washington, D.C., and we got an up-close and personal tour of the city. And Ralph actually met me with my family at the end of that trip because we decided to extend it since we had some family that lives right outside of Washington, D.C., and we hadn't seen them in a while. So we took that opportunity to, to make a trip out of it. And it was the first trip that Ralph took with my family and me, and he got to meet some of my extended family. And I remember, she's not technically my aunt, but that's what I refer to her as, at some point Ralph left the room and she was like oh my gosh he's so wonderful like do you think he's the one could he be the one and I remember for sure blushing and turning red and shrugging my shoulders and saying I I don't know maybe and then I ended up telling Ralph about that conversation later on and very seriously very calmly he just looked at me and said well I already know you're the one and I think that was the moment that I knew, like, I'm, I'm going to marry this boy. So we dated for seven and a half years. We definitely went through some growing pains. You know, we, we dated all through our college years. You don't expect to meet the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with so young. It's just kind of the way it happened for us. But there were definitely rough patches along the way, growing pains. You know, there were times where we almost called it quits, but fortunately we were able to work it out. We were able to grow closer together through those obstacles instead of growing apart, which is something that happens very commonly, especially for young couples. We got engaged at 23 and married at 25. 
We were both at the start of our careers. Ralph was beginning as a City of Miami firefighter, and he had always wanted to work for that specific department. And I was at the start of my career as a speech-language pathologist. I had just landed a job with what used to be called Miami Children's Hospital. It's now called Nicholas Children's. And I had always wanted to work there. And luckily for us, we were able to live at home while we went to college since we both went to school locally at FIU and we were both on scholarship. We were able to save a lot of money and we actually purchased our home right before getting married. And it wasn't even a starter home like this. It, it worked out perfectly. This was going to be our forever home. We found it. It was under foreclosure. It was in the neighborhood that Ralph always wanted to live in. So, you know, we had each other. We had the careers we wanted. We had the house we wanted. And we were super young. Like everything just seemed to be falling into place just as we wanted it. Because we were both Virgos. Our birthdays are in September, just five days apart. And Ralph more so than me. Ralph is like the epitome of a Virgo, you know, planner, analytical, and, and I'm that way too. I plan and I plan and I plan and everything seemed to be going according to our plan. So we had always said we would be married for a couple of years before starting a family and we were kind of on the fence around 27, almost 28 if we wanted to start or wait a little longer and I had a health scare. I uh, found out that I have a form of lymphoma that thankfully, in my case, isn't expected to ever really turn systemic or progress into anything serious. It just manifests on my skin and that's it. But at the beginning, we just heard, you know, she has lymphoma and we were very scared. But when we got the reassur reassurance from the doctor that I would be okay, that was kind of like when we decided maybe maybe it's time we start trying to have a child and I remember at that appointment at the end of it Ralph said to the doctor okay so we're thinking about having a kid soon like it's okay she's healthy she's fine we can do that and the doctor said yes absolutely go for it I got pregnant that weekend <laughs> it happened so quickly and Ralph and I always used to talk about like what our biggest fears were and my biggest fear has always been that I would you know, have trouble conceiving or have difficult pregnancies. And we'll talk about that more later on in the show, which ended up happening. But with my first pregnancy, it didn't. Like I got pregnant with Mason, no problem. Perfect, healthy pregnancy. So shortly after that, Ralph started studying pretty hard for his promotional exam to become a lieutenant with the fire department. So I, I found out I was pregnant um, in September. Actually, it was right before my birthday. And I remember, I remember I found out and Ralph was working. He was teaching night classes because on the side, he also uh, taught, he taught paramedics. And he was teaching night classes and I took this pregnancy test, it was positive. I took a second one, it was also positive just to make sure. And I knew that I didn't want to tell my husband I was pregnant over text message. So I had to wait and I was dying because I'm the worst at that. Like those kind of secrets, if I get you a gift, I want to give it to you right away. So like if I'm buying you a Christmas gift, I have to get it right before Christmas or I will cave and I will give it to you early. Ralph got mad at me several times over the years because of that. So I remember I, I went to dinner that night with my parents and I didn't want to tell them before telling my husband. So that was torture. And I had to wait till like 11 o'clock at night when he got home and... I just gave him the two pregnancy tests as soon as he walked through the door and his face was like, 
oh my God, seriously, like already? And in true Virgo planner Ralph fashion, he went straight to the refrigerator, took our calendar off of the refrigerator, placed it on the dining room table and started calculating. And he was like, all right, so when did we probably conceive? When is this baby gonna be born? Does it coincide with your school breaks? Because at that point I had switched careers and I was at the school system since I wanted to have a similar schedule to what our children would have since Ralph had a weird schedule. And then he was like, all right, how much do we need to save? How much time do we have to save it? And I remember telling him, you need to chill take a moment, can you like enjoy this with me for a second? And that was when he was like, okay. And he gave me a hug and we were both really happy and we got a little emotional. And then his test would be on March 20th. So pretty much right after we found out that we were expecting, he hit the books really hard. And truthfully, I really didn't see much of Ralph throughout my pregnancy because he was studying so hard. And if I'm being honest, at times it was difficult. At times it caused a little bit of friction because, you know, I'm a hormonal pregnant woman and I felt alone a lot. I knew ultimately that it was gonna be worth it, that he was doing this for the best interest of our family. But at the time it was hard. I had to do like our registry by myself. I planned my baby shower by myself with some help from like my mother and his mother, but he couldn't really be involved. And that was hard. But I just kept telling myself, okay, March 20th. March 20th is the day that I, that I have to focus on. That's when the test is going to be. After that, I'll get my husband back. We'll have our life back. And we can enjoy this pregnancy together. And it was supposed to work out perfectly because after March 20th, I was actually going to be on spring break. So I had planned on you know taking that week to work on the nursery together. I had planned our maternity pictures and our baby shower was actually going to be at the end of that on the 29th. Little did I know that we wouldn't make it to that date. So after that, all the days kind of blend together for me. I remember waiting to speak to the first neurosurgeon and he wanted to go in and operate right away. We didn't really know exactly what it was that was in Ralph's brain at that point. The doctor was suspecting that it was what he was calling a low-grade glioma, so a less serious tumor. And that doctor really gave us false hope because he made it sound like he would go in there, operate, and Ralph could potentially be walking out of the hospital days after that. After doing some research, my father-in-law and one of Ralph's brothers convinced us that Ralph really needed to transfer to the University of Miami Hospital because there was a specific surgeon over there that was the best in his field and that's who should be seeing Ralph and, and we agreed. So at some point over the next few days, we transferred to the other hospital and we waited to speak to that surgeon. And I remember we were all very anxious about that meeting. We were waiting for him to you know, review the scans and then tell us what he thought the plan should be. And it was Ralph in the room, I was with him, his parents, his brothers, and my parents. And the doctor finally made it late at night. I think he had had surgery that day. And he was telling us that he wanted to biopsy first so that we could know exactly what we were dealing with, which made total sense to us. So basically he said we would biopsy right away and then it would take about two weeks for the results to come back. 
he was even saying that we might be able to go home for those two weeks and, and come back to the hospital once we knew. And I remember the first thing Ralph was asking that doctor was, oh, so I can still take my test. He was still thinking about this damn test. So you can imagine I was a little bit annoyed. And the doctor told him, like, I think you need to stop thinking about this test right now. Like, this is, this is a big deal. And he told him, you know, we don't know exactly what we're dealing with, but even if it's something more minor, if I have to go in there and operate, you're going to take a hit. Those were his exact words. You're going to take a hit because of the location of the brain. There are going to be, you know, consequences to it. And Ralph was a smart guy. You know, he had studied the human brain. He knew the implications of having surgery in your cerebellum. And I think when he heard it from that doctor, that was the moment when it all became very real to him. And if you ask my mother-in-law, because I've had this conversation with her about that moment, she really thinks that that was the moment that Ralph knew there was a very, very big possibility that he was going to die. And Ralph had always told me that his biggest fear was ending up in a wheelchair, being hospitalized, or like being stuck in his body. And I remember when everybody left, it was just me and him in the room, and that was really the only time that I saw him look really scared and cry. And I was trying to reassure him. I was telling him, you know, whatever happens, we will figure it out. I'm not going anywhere. I will do whatever it takes. You know, I will make sure that you can be as present as possible. You're going to be a great dad. And he stopped me and he said, I don't want to be in a wheelchair when my son is being born. I want to be there. I want to hold him. That was hard. That was a moment I'll never forget. After that, my father-in-law and I were escorted to the waiting area. At this point, it was like really early in the morning. And we were there maybe five or ten minutes before we heard them call a code blue on the loudspeaker. And we saw the crash team running in the direction to where we had just left Ralph. And I knew it wasn't good. And then shortly after that, the doctor came out to talk to us. She told me to sit down. And she basically said that Ralph had been doing really well. He couldn't speak anymore, but he was still answering questions with thumbs up or thumbs down for yes and no. And then suddenly he just went unresponsive. So at that point, I broke down and I remember crying and saying, I can't do this alone. I can't do this alone. They called the neurosurgeon in to perform emergency surgery, and that took a really long time. People started showing up to wait with us in the waiting area, and it took hours. And then finally, the doctor came out with his team and called me, Ralph's parents, and his brothers to let us know how, how the surgery had gone. And I remember him saying that Ralph had suffered a bleed and the surgery went well. I can't remember if he said now that they got all of the tumor or most of the tumor, but he said at this point, what we need to hope for is for Ralph to recover from the bleed. So I didn't really know the details at that point. He made it sound like the surgery had been, you know, mostly a success with the exception of the damage caused by the bleed. And then we had to wait until we could go up to ICU to see Ralph. 
And I remember thinking like something is off in the doctor's demeanor. He, he seemed upset because I'm, I'm pretty perceptive. I, I'm good at reading people. And I just felt like he looked upset. So Ralph's dad was let into the ICU first and then I was let in shortly after that. And I remember walking in and seeing the doctor sitting by a computer and he was sobbing. This man was sobbing. And I sat down with him and I said, listen, I know that you see me and you see a seven month pregnant woman and you think I need to be shielded, you think I need to be protected. But I said, I'm not dumb. I know exactly what's going on. I've worked in the medical field. You know, I need you to be transparent with me. Whatever you say to Ralph's dad, you can say to me, I can handle it. And he just gave me a big hug and he said, you're one tough cookie. And then I went into the room where Ralph was. I saw him connected to all the machines. And at that point, I just stayed by his side as much as I could. I learned that he had a grade four glioblastoma, which is basically, you know, the worst, the worst brain tumor that you can get. They're very aggressive. And it had ruptured, essentially causing a stroke that crushed his brainstem. So the tumor was in his cerebellum, but the bleed crushed the brainstem. And the brainstem is the area of the brain that sustains just life. It controls basic bodily functions. So at some point they were coming in to take him for another MRI to confirm this damage, which they really didn't need to do. I remember when they came in, I said to the doctor, is, is there really any point in doing this MRI? And he just looked at me and he didn't say anything. He shook his head. So, you know, we decided not to have the MRI done. We already knew what had happened. And later that evening, a nurse came in to administer some medications. Ralph was starting to get fevers. And so she was trying to control that and giving him some other meds through his IV. And I was always asking, like, what are you giving him? And... I asked, are you, you know, are you sedating him? And she said, no, he's been off sedation since nine o'clock this morning. And this was already in the evening. And I said, oh, okay, so he's not waking up on his own. And she said, no, not yet, he's not. And I left the room. I went and gathered Ralph's parents and his brothers and my parents and we all met in a conference room and I said to them, listen, I just learned that Ralph has been off sedation since nine o'clock this morning and he's not waking up on his own. And I said, guys, we need to start preparing ourselves. We need to start preparing ourselves because I don't think Ralph is waking up. And everybody was just crying and processing the information. I remember one of his brothers saying, this is so unfair. We just needed a little bit more time. And I said, yeah, I know. So at that point, we decided that we would start the organ donation process. I 
told his parents and his brothers that, you know, Ralph and I had had conversations about these things. And I knew that he would not want to live with that kind of quality of life. Um, you know, that he had told me that if there was no chance of me being okay, that you needed to let me go. That his biggest fear was being stuck in his body or being paralyzed, unable to speak, unable to hear, unable to see. So we started that process. Ralph was an organ donor, and um, we started speaking to that team. And it's a whole process. We had to wait, you know, a certain amount of hours. They had to go in periodically to just confirm that there was still no brain activity. And it took a while. Um, initially, we were going to unplug him on March 23rd, but we ended up having to wait until the next day. And he was unplugged on March 24th. His time of death was 7.42. And I really think that he held on for that last day just so that he could donate his organs because his body was starting to shut down on its own, even on life support. I remember his chest started making this weird movement and there was, you know, all kinds of liquid building up in his mouth and his body was just starting to shut down. And I really believe that he held on so that he could donate his organs so that, you know, so that this could all mean something. So Ralph was gone within 10 days of going to the ER. It all happened so quickly. It was so difficult. I know that in my lifetime, I will never ever go to another funeral like Ralph's. It was just incredible. One of his favorite movies was Ladder 39, and if you've seen that movie, if you remember the funeral scene, that was Ralph's funeral. There were so many people there, and I always knew that he was special. His family knew that he was special, but it was amazing to see just how special he was to so many people, and I had so many people reach out to me and tell me how he had touched them how he had helped them in some way. And I still, to this day, have people reach out to me and tell me stories about him. Ralph was a really special person, not just because he was my husband, but he truly was. He was one of the most genuine, good-hearted people. He would give you the shirt off his back if that's what it took. And I know that he would have been an excellent father. So that's the story of us. I do what I do to continue to honor him and his legacy. And I think his story is a story that needs to be told. And he is the inspiration for all of this that I do. So that's the story of us. Until next time. So March 2015. March 2015 was definitely the hardest month of my life. This all started on the 13th, it was a Friday. I remember that Ralph and I were home. He was actually studying at home, which he hadn't been doing most of the time. 
and we ate dinner together in our kitchen. We ordered from a restaurant that we ordered from a lot. It was called Ferrari's, and especially during my pregnancy because I was always craving spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> so we ordered spaghetti and meatballs, and we were eating at the kitchen counter, and I remember telling Ralph, like, he looked really tired. And that was totally understandable because he wasn't getting much sleep with all the studying that he was doing. He was staying up really late. And he just looked at me and said, yeah, I don't, I don't feel so good. And I, I said, well, what are you feeling? And he just said, I don't know. I, I just feel off. And that was it. We didn't think much of it. I convinced him to stop the studying for the night, close the books, and just you know go to bed and get some rest. And so we did. And that would be the last night that we spent in our house together. The next morning on the 14th, before he even lifted his head from the pillow, he was saying, I don't feel good. I don't feel good. Something's wrong. And then I'll never forget the way that he looked when he got up and was trying to get to the bathroom because he needed to throw up. He was walking like he was completely, completely drunk. It was, it was just, I can't even explain. He made it to the bathroom, to the toilet, started throwing up. And my initial thought was, well, maybe he got food poisoning. But then I quickly dismissed that because we both ate the same exact dish from the same restaurant. So it couldn't be that. So I just rubbed his back until he stopped throwing up for a little bit. I was able to help him get back to the bed and lay down. He looked awful. And I told him, okay, I'm, I'm taking you to urgent care because we need to figure out what's going on. And it was right across the street from our house. And he fought me every step of the way because, again, all that was on his mind was studying for this exam. And he didn't want to take any time away from that. So I kind of had to put my foot down and say, like, you're going. I don't care. You're going. It's just going to take a little while and then you can get back to your studying. So that's what we did. We went to urgent care. And, you know, the doctor asked some questions. Obviously, I mean, how could anybody know what was going on? We had no idea. She thought that, you know, it was probably just vertigo and maybe exhaustion and dehydration. And she prescribed some anti-nausea meds. And she told us to look on YouTube for some vertigo maneuvers, that that might help. And she sent us home. So, of course, when we're leaving, Ralph kind of had like that smug look on his face, like, I told you so. And we went home and I called his dad because his dad is a doctor just to let him know what was going on. He came over, made sure that Ralph was resting because he knew how stubborn Ralph was, made sure he was resting, made sure that he was hydrating and taking his meds. So he spent a little bit of time with us and then Ralph appeared to be starting to feel better. So he went home and Ralph just spent the day on the couch watching movies and stuff. And I remember telling him, well, you know, now that you're feeling a little bit better and you're able to keep down some water, maybe you can start introducing Gatorade. So I gave him a bottle of Gatorade and then I walked to the kitchen because I was going to eat some dinner. And I was sitting by myself eating and I heard him just start throwing up again. And it just sounded so bad. It sounded so bad. And in that moment, I was like, this isn't good. I just had a gut feeling. So I called my father-in-law again and... He agreed with me and he said, okay, at this point, I think we need to take him to the ER because he should be starting to feel better. So meet me there. I hung up with him and I told Ralph and he was totally pissed off. But I told him, 
I'm sorry, this is, you know, I'm worried about you. This is what's happening. I don't care if we have to drag you over there. We're going. This was like at 10 o'clock at night at this point. So I called my dad because my parents lived closer to us than Ralph's parents did. I called my dad and I told him what was going on and that I needed him to help me because I couldn't get Ralph all the way to the car by myself. So my dad got there and he had to literally hold Ralph up and take really tiny steps all the way to the car because that's how off balance Ralph was. And he was a big, strong guy, you know, he was heavy. There was no way I could have done that. So we got in the car, Ralph had our trash can from our master bathroom in case he needed to throw up more. And we started driving to the hospital and he looked like he was really out of it. But I was talking to my dad in the front seat and explaining everything that that had happened all day. And Ralph was, you know, cracking his little sarcastic jokes here and there. And I remember my dad saying, hey, like, you look like crap, but you're pretty with it. So we made it to the hospital. Ralph's parents met us there. My mom met us there. And we went into the ER and, you know, they started taking a history. They started an IV to hydrate him and Ralph was just explaining everything that he was feeling. At some point they did a CT scan and I remember the doctor coming in and a lot of the conversation was directed to my father-in-law since he's a physician and he has privileges at this hospital. And I remember the doctor telling him basically that the CT scan looked good and she used the term artifact, which I still don't really know what that means, but putting context clues together, I was able to determine that she was basically telling him that whatever they saw on the scan, they were saying was artifact, which meant that it was not a big deal. And then she did look at me and she said, the CT scan looks good. So I remember in that moment, very briefly feeling some relief. But again, I was like, I don't know, something still just doesn't feel right to me. So they did decide to admit him anyway, and they were going to perform an MRI. At this point, it was like midnight, and Ralph told me, like, you need to go home. You're seven months pregnant. You need to go, you know, sleep in our comfortable bed, go let the dog out, get some rest, and come back in the morning, and I'll, I'll be fine. And very hesitantly, I left because I didn't want to leave him alone. And I went home, got maybe five hours of sleep, and went right back to the hospital the next day. And I remember walking into his hospital room. So at this point, it is the 15th. I walk into his hospital room. He appears to be sleeping. He's in the bed with his eyes closed. And I didn't want to disturb him because I was sure he had had a difficult night. And the nurse was in there just taking some notes on the computer. And I started talking to her. I asked her how he was feeling and if we had any updates. And she said, well... All we know right now is that the lesion is there in the cerebellum, but we don't know anything else yet. Little did she know that at that point I didn't know about this lesion. And I didn't want to make her feel bad, so you know I, I remained composed. I waited for her to leave the room, and then Ralph opened his eyes. Apparently he had been listening to that conversation, and he was just like, I, I wanted to be the one to tell you. And I said, okay. I was trying to stay calm. I could tell that he didn't really know what to say, neither did I. So I left the room. I was starting to call my mom and I think I got halfway through telling her when I looked up and I saw my father-in-law and my mother-in-law walking towards the hospital room. They were coming to see Ralph. And I remember 
I'll never forget that moment. I remember making eye contact with my father-in-law. And in that moment, he knew that I knew. And I just broke down. And they hugged me. They were crying too. And I remember I just kept saying, this is so unfair. This is so unfair. He doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve this. And I'll never forget my mother-in-law saying, you don't deserve this. Before that meeting with the second neurosurgeon, Ralph was looking amazing. It was the weirdest thing, like when we first went to the ER at that first hospital, he looked like hell. Really, really bad. And then something happened where suddenly he became asymptomatic and he wasn't really taking meds and he just looked awesome. He was like glowing. And so many people came through to wish him well, like other firefighters, friends from high school, family members, and everybody that came through was commenting on how great he looked. And when they saw him, they said, man, you're going to be just fine. Like, you look amazing. And I really think looking back now, that was really, Ralph was doing more for the people coming through than they were for him. It was kind of an opportunity for everybody to come through and, and say their goodbyes. After that meeting with the neurosurgeon, when Ralph really knew the reality of what was going on. Shortly after that, he started to get really severe headaches, which he had not had prior to that. Or if he did, he wasn't complaining about it. But I remember hearing him, it was the middle of the night, and hearing him ask the nurse for morphine. And when I heard that, I said to myself, oh, this is really bad, because Ralph was the most stubborn person for taking medication, he, you know, unless he absolutely needed it, he just, he didn't want to do it. I remember while he was studying, at one point he was suffering from like a sinus infection. And one of his best friends, Max, who he was studying with, kept telling him, can you please take something because your sniffling is like driving me crazy? And Ralph kept telling him, no man, you got to let the body do what it's got to do. So he was very stubborn for taking meds. So when I heard him ask for that morphine, I knew that he was in immense pain. So I called my father-in-law. I had him come to the hospital. By the time he got there, Ralph was like writhing in pain. He could not sit still. He could not get comfortable in the bed, even after taking the morphine. And then we were waiting for a procedure. So basically what they decided to do was order what's called a blood patch procedure because prior to the headaches, at some point, Ralph had had a spinal tap to rule out some other things. And I didn't know this, I learned this at the time, that a blood patch procedure is something that, um, for example, women who have epidurals will sometimes need this procedure. And basically it kind of equalizes the pressure and helps alleviate the headaches. So they thought maybe that's what's going on with Ralph. So we were waiting for this procedure and at some point, he suddenly seemed to not be in pain anymore. He became very peaceful, very calm. And he just kept telling me, I can't feel this side of my face. I can't hear out of this ear. And his speech started to sound really slurred. And it was getting worse and worse. So they got to the room to wheel him, you know, down to OR. And I remember being in the elevator my father-in-law covered Ralph's face because the bright lights were aggravating the headache. And Ralph said something 
And to this day, we don't know what he said because his speech was getting so bad that we couldn't understand him. We knew that he said, I love you. But the other part of it, we, we still don't know what he said. So we made it to OR. They started asking him questions. They were prepping him for the procedure. And they were having a hard time understanding him. So I started kind of answering some of the questions for him. And they kind of kicked me out, which I understood. I mean, I, I get it. They needed to, you know, do what they needed to do. So I just told Ralph, I love you. You're going to feel better soon. And he said to me with a crooked smile, he said, I miss our camita. I miss our bed. And those were our last words to each other.